welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast, and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 84, Behind the Dykes, Renaissance Theatre in the Netherlands. Last time, I completed my review of the Commedia dell'arte, a theatrical form that started in Italy and then spread to France, where it was met with much enthusiasm throughout society, from the court downwards. In time, it became highly influential throughout the rest of Europe too, and, in more time, entwined itself with the story of the neoclassical theatre. But that ongoing history falls outside of the Renaissance period. Indeed, it carries on right up to today. So, for the moment, I'm going to leave that story and start the final run of episodes in the season devoted to the Renaissance period theatre. So now, let me take you north, to a small country right on the edge of mainland Europe, the Netherlands. At first, we have to acknowledge a paucity of sources and examples compared to Italy, France, England and even Germany. From the period, there are relatively few plays preserved in manuscripts and early printed copies, and it's probably safe to assume that only those considered the very best, for whatever reason that might be, have survived. From the early 15th century, we only have one play collection, known as the Van Hultem Manuscript. This volume includes four plays on chivalric themes, five farces and a few comedies. By the end of that century, the text of the Dutch morality play Everyman, which was the basis for the English version, was in print, suggesting that this play in particular was very popular in the Netherlands as it was elsewhere, given the rarity of printed texts generally. Thanks to this slow start, the Dutch theatre looked medieval for longer than most of the dramatic entertainment on offer in Central and Southern Europe. But the influence of the Renaissance did get to the Netherlands eventually. Given the destruction of the Thirty Years' War moving backwards and forwards across the Germanic and Flemish states of Europe between 1618 and 1648, it is a wonder that any art could flourish at all. For many people during that time, survival was the only thing on their mind. I mentioned previously the stunting effect the Thirty Years' War had in the German states, but in the Netherlands there was something of an opposite effect, and that wasn't because the country was any less divided religiously than their Germanic neighbours were. The south of the country, the area of Flanders, now part of Belgium, was devotedly Catholic and historically allied to Spain, while the north was staunchly Protestant, holding a deep resentment for that previous Spanish occupation. There is an image that this was a small country hunkering down in the dark European winter behind their dikes, the only thing saving them from the North Sea and a watery death. But in fact, having lived with that fear for centuries, the locals had turned their proximity to the sea to an advantage and, with good reason, they trusted their maritime defences. A wealthy middle class of traders had developed and by the late 1500s they were keen patrons of the arts in all its forms. To put it simply, if you lived in the south and towed the line, you could make a good artistic living. In the north, you were more likely to be inclined to protest and to live with all the dangers to your person that that implied. The result was a Dutch golden age, where many of the nation's achievements, militarily, in trade and commerce, and in art and literature, were the gold standard of European achievement for a period that spanned the years from about 1588 to 1672. But the story of Dutch theatre starts back at the end of the 14th century, when a group of Flemish aristocrats created a writer's circle, 
to write and perform mystery and morality plays. The rhetoricians, as they were called, expanded into many local branches, some of which joined in loose affiliation, but they were usually led by a senior local figure. Their look and feel wasn't unlike the trades guilds that developed and then dominated the lives of the middle class and the newly wealthy traders. Like much of the organisation in the Netherlands, cultural activity was very local, centred on the larger towns and the few cities. The rhetoricians concerned themselves with civic matters as well as artistic ones, so at their meetings they often debated civic and religious concerns as well as artistic ones, debates that spilled into their creative activities as well. During the more than a century that they were significantly active, it is difficult to underestimate the influence of the rhetoricians on Dutch society, and as ever, the creative sought approval from those in power, in a practical way as some guarantee for protections, but also for kudos. In the capital, the Amsterdam Circle led the way by receiving the tacit approval of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. A tradition was established for these groups to gather together once a year in a movable location for a carnival celebration that culminated in a drama competition. The subject matter of the plays was still predominantly religious, but this changed slowly, first with the introduction of moral questions and then some overtly secular subjects. Records from 1561 show that Margaret of Austria, Duchess of Parma, who was then Governor of the Netherlands, was asked to choose three titles from a list of 24 suggestions for the competition. She chose, Is wisdom fostered more by experience than learning? Why does a miser desire more riches? And Who can best awaken man to appreciate the arts? Which presumably produced some variants of morality plays, with maybe some more freedoms allowed on the last option. The influence of the rhetoricians with their traditions that were rooted in the medieval meant that ideas from the Renaissance only filtered in relatively slowly, without having any significant effect until about 1560. Up to that point, theatre in the Netherlands remained largely faithful to traditional styles and therefore looked very medieval. Because the majority of texts composed by playwrights were copied out in manuscripts more or less representing their repertoire, it's difficult to tell when exactly the plays written down in these collections were actually composed. The most striking example of this is the large play collection of the Harlem Chamber of Rhetoricians. This volume was started in about 1600, but it includes many texts that certainly date back to the early 1500s. One of the most successful playwrights in the competition was Peter Hooft. Born in 1581, his father was a merchant who served as mayor of Amsterdam, and he'd sent his son to France and Italy to learn the merchant's trade. But he returned more enamoured with the art of the Italian Renaissance than the principles of trade. He was appointed bailiff to the city of Moyden, where he founded a literary society, the Moyden Circle. Writing poetry and plays soon took over his life, until later on when he turned his energies to writing a history of the Netherlands. His first success was in 1613, when he tried to elevate Dutch history with a Senecan-style tragedy that also displayed the Aristotelian unities to reportedly great effect. His play Aeschylus and Polyxena from 1614 prompted a classical revival in the Netherlands, and pastorals that he created, starting with Granida in 1615, introduced that form to his countrymen. But it wasn't all religion and tragedy. 
While Hooft was reimagining Seneca and Greek tragedy, his contemporary and member of his group G.A. Bendero was writing popular farces and comedies. The son of a father who managed a dual career as a shoemaker and a state agent, he was well educated in Amsterdam, where he lived all his life. He died young, aged just 33, having contracted pneumonia after falling through the ice in a canal. He left just seven plays to his name. His cast of rowdy characters owed a large debt to Plautus, but they were portrayed as locals plucked from the near countryside. One example, called Die Klucht von der Kuh, the farce of the cow, is typical. A conman asks a farmer to sell his cow for him, as he's in need of money. The farmer agrees, not realising that the cow is in fact one from his own herd, that the conman has stolen. They agree to meet at the inn, and while the farmer sells the cow to his neighbour, the conman eats well at the inn on the prospect of the sale. When the farmer arrives at the inn and hands over the money from the sale, the conman insists that he joins him for food, but then disappears without paying. To avoid the embarrassment of admitting that he's been conned, the farmer pays for the meal. It's simple stuff, and a variant on the standard tale of the conman getting the better of a pompous character, in this case a farmer. And the comedy is in the characters and in the quick dialogue. The traditions of farce stretched back into the late medieval period, and continued into the Renaissance as a defined genre, clucked in Flemish which expanded from the traditional medieval mobile wagon stages into the homes of the wealthy and eventually into purpose-built theatres. Cornelius van der Pless was a bookseller and publisher working in Amsterdam, who wrote retrospectively about the theatrical genres in 1638 in his introduction to the collected plays of Bendero. He says... Tragedies give priority to dignity and stateliness, as is fitting for significant personages, kings, royalty, priests, magistrates, nobles, military commanders and such like, living in castles, cities, palaces, town halls, military barracks and churches. And the language, like the characters, is also full of majesty and high-flown, the outcomes bloody, terrible and important. Comedies spring boisterously onto the stage, with light-hearted battles amongst the lowest of the peasants, shepherds, farmers, labourers, innkeepers, landladies, procuresses, prostitutes, midwives, sailors, spendthrifts, beggars and toadies. In fields, forests, huts, shops, inns, pubs, on the street, in alleys and slums, in the meat hall and in the fish market, the chatter that goes on around there is true to life and the outcome farcical and pleasant. So I don't think there would be any argument with his assessment of tragedy there. His description would have been recognised by the ancient Greeks themselves, and on the whole, his description of comedy and farce is also accurate. But he misses out on the use of satire and its potential impact. Comedy can have a dual purpose, with serious intent underlying the comedy, for those who want to see it. In Holland... There is a prominent example of this, although it's quite late in the Renaissance period, as we're now firmly in the middle of the 17th century. In the Netherlands, this was a period where there was, and there had been for an extended period, significant immigration from the Germanic states. The extended disruptions of the Thirty Years' War, 
the religious persecutions and the apparent opportunities and relative prosperity in the Netherlands led to an influx of immigrants and the almost inevitable backlash. There are several farces from the period where the protagonist is a German immigrant who attempts in some way to take advantage of the Dutch success, either in business or in trying their luck with a local girl, and often something of both. The immigrant is roundly tricked and made fun of by the locals and ends up humiliated in some way, covered in rotten vegetables or worse, or naked in the street, that sort of thing. All great silly fun on the surface, and because the plays are farces, they have been seen in that light by commentators in the past, but there is a strong undercurrent of strong anti-German feeling on display. The plays were popular and numerous enough to be known by their own subgenre, Moffenkluchten. Moff is the slang term for German immigrants that originates from this period, probably derived from the German muff, meaning big mouth or generally grumpy person. The same term later morphed into a pejorative for the Nazi occupying force during the Second World War. As in the other countries I've covered in the Renaissance period, farce and comedy were popular entertainment, at least among those who frequented the theatre, but in the Netherlands it's likely that it had a real bite to it and was allowed to flourish especially when it looked at to the outsider, to the other, as the butt of the joke. But now, back to those literary carnivals and the rhetoricians. The literary carnivals and competition gave theatrical performances artistic legitimacy and the societies used them to promote both serious drama and comedy but also more generally humanist thinking and classical learning. As a maritime trading nation, there was an influx of ideas coming in with traders from southern Europe and England. From England particularly, visiting travelling players left ideas on the presentation of theatre and the subject matter for plays that had strong influence. Theatres were built to the Roman stage model, using height and depth to provide a backdrop to plays where location was changed by use of painted backcloth, as in the Italian style. That soon merged with acting techniques and architectural borrowings from England, so that the merging of styles and introduction of features like pillars on the stage resulted in a style that was a combination drawn from others, but unique to the Netherlands. Perhaps the most celebrated playwright to come out of these competitions was Joost van der Vondel. He was German by birth, but had lived in Amsterdam from the age of 12 when his father set up a hosiery business in 1599. When his father died in 1610, he took over the business, but soon married a capable Flemish woman who then ran the business while he devoted himself to poetry. His first play, The Deliverance from Egypt, was produced the same year. Vondel had been brought up as a member of the Anabaptist sect, a group who looked severely on worldly activities and soon let it be known that they disapproved of his association with the theatre. But clearly he had the bug and wouldn't give it up. That didn't stop him remaining deeply religious throughout his life, but as his success grew, a separation from the Anabaptists was inevitable. He moved from Protestant group to Protestant group, trying to find a religious home that would reconcile with his art, a process that took him the rest of his life. While doing that, he also studied Italian and French literature, with the expressed intention of expanding his mind. In another strand to his life, he'd become engaged politically with groups who favoured political and religious freedom, so much so that in 1620 he wrote a play called The Destruction of Jerusalem. 
This was a thinly veiled criticism of Prince Maurice of Orange, who had ordered the execution of the ageing statesman and effective leader of the group looking for more freedoms, Johann Oden Lanevelt. After the play was performed, a warrant was issued for Vondel's arrest, and he went into hiding, but after hiding away for a few months, he was able to negotiate his return, and in the end, he was let off with a fine. He stopped writing for a while, although this is thought to have more to do with the death of his wife and her son in quick succession, rather than a fear of censorship. Until in 1637, he emerged from that dark period, when he was commissioned to write a play to mark the opening of Holland's first civic theatre. He chose for his subject the history of the city of Amsterdam. Gisbrecht von Amstel is a retelling of the siege and destruction of the city in the 14th century, but also a reflection on his religious uncertainties and the sadness of a life lived when loved ones have been lost. From his castle on the banks of the Amstel River, Gisbrecht leads his men to drive off various attacks and rushes out in pursuit of them. Vosmir, an enemy combatant, is taken captive, apparently of his own volition, as he tells how he has been mistreated by his supposed companions in the besieging army. Gisbrecht believes that he is a genuine deserter, and welcomes the information about the enemy that he brings with him. Back in the castle, the defenders of the city give thanks to God for lifting the siege and the rout of its attackers. Vosmir tells of how the enemy has been gathering a huge pile of firewood, he suggests that it be brought inside the city walls in case they return to renew the assault. When Gisbrecht acts on this, the enemy reveal themselves from their hiding place beneath the woodpile and set fire to the city. Seeing his home razed to the ground, Gisbrecht asks to die in its ashes, but he is prevented by the archangel Raphael and told to go with his family to Prussia and establish a town that is called New Holland. The archangel declares that the destruction of Amsterdam was ordained, but he promises that it will someday be restored and become a jewel amongst the cities of the world. Following a New Year's Day production in 1658, this play was produced in Amsterdam on New Year's Day every year, a tradition that lasted until 1968. Now, not many plays can lay claim to a 300-year run, but there are some serious flaws in the piece if you're looking for historical accuracy. It was in fact Gisbrecht's son, Jan, who led the defence of the city in 1304, and Gisbrecht himself was more of a mercenary than a heroic figure. It is thanks to the success of the play that Gisbrecht has been held as a local historic hero in Amsterdam, albeit somewhat erroneously. Vondel continued to write plays and search for religious satisfaction, which he apparently found when he, much to the consternation of his friends, converted to Catholicism in 1641. When a son drove his family business into failure and fled the country, Vondel, then in his 70s, had to pick up the debts. He took a job as a clerk to make ends meet while still writing plays and poetry, including a very well-received translation of Ovid, until he was in his early 80s when the city finally woke up to his plight and awarded him, rather belatedly, a pension. His 32 plays follow an arc from the secular to the ever more deeply religious. As well as embracing Aristotle's unities, he tried to mould the religious stories to tragic forms guided by Euripides, Sophocles and Seneca. Consequently, and despite influence from the Italian Renaissance, his plays lack dramatic action and rely on the strength of the dialogue and the power of his language. He was, at heart, a poet. 
Reflecting his own struggles to find a faith that was compatible with daily life, the plays have a central theme of man's never-ending battle to control his rebellious nature and conform to God's will. After attempts to adapt Seneca and to give the classical stories current relevance, he reviewed his first play and tore it up, regretting the references to the persecution of the Anabaptists that it contained, and then turned to religious plays in the firm Catholic leaning. He still had a liking for the sweeping epic in his plays, picking subjects like Noah and the Flood, Joseph in Egypt, Samson, The Judgments of Solomon and The Life of King David, which was an original play and then a sequel. These are all seen as semi-tragic plays, given the inability of man to attain the standards required by God, but also as particularly Dutch in their social and religious outlook. The tragic mode suited Vondel's outlook on life and his belief that man's failings were born from inner flaws and were not the effect of outward events. He showed this to best effect and his own self-proclaimed best play in Jephtha, or The Promised Sacrifice, written in 1659. In the play, a central character is doomed because of excessive religious zeal, a zeal that has the effect of hiding God's true intentions. He further expanded on this theme the following year in the five-act tragedy Lucifer, where Lucifer is consumed by jealousy for God's new and highly favoured creation, mankind. He's bitter that this new creation has been given an Eden, a paradise, in which to live, and been elevated to the rank that, to Lucifer, seems even higher than that of the angels. He is not alone amongst the heavenly company, who are portrayed as an envious and rebellious lot. They seek Lucifer out and offer him leadership, if he will rise up against God. They ask that he should command them in an assault on Michael, God's chief lieutenant, but he is hesitant and torn between loyalty and defection, but he is finally swayed by their flattery. The tragedy comes with his belated recognition of his profound error, that his inordinate pride has led him astray, for he no longer has the strength to beg forgiveness and a reconciliation with God. Defeated, he is metamorphosized into a bestial creature and plunged into the darkness, though not before he's caused the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the lush and lovely Garden of Eden. And if that all sounds a bit familiar, it's probably not because you've seen or read this play, but through Milton's Paradise Lost. It's believed that Milton was aware of Lucifer and was influenced by it. Vondel's plays marked the high point of the rhetorician's influences and indeed lasted well beyond them. His plays remained popular for a time after his death in 1679, particularly in Germany and with travelling Dutch players, who gained a lot of popularity in Germany and England. As for the rhetoricians, their number of branches reduced as local societies closed or merged, and even in Amsterdam, the several city branches merged into two, and then in 1618 into just a single group called the Academy. The city donated a theatre, the Playhouse, to their care, until it was taken back in 1638 and thereby became the first municipal theatre in Europe. The Playhouse was designed by architect Jacob von Kampen, who had travelled to Italy studying theatre design there, and the influence of that is clear in the design of the building. But it also introduces features that would have been familiar to the rhetoricians and their actors. There's no proscenium arch or front curtain. 
Along both sides and at the rear of the stage were rows of decorative pillars, between which there was space to insert painted panels to indicate changes of location. The panels may also have been double-sided to be rotated for a quick scene change. The same panels could also be completely removed to reveal deeper vistas behind, probably incorporating ideas from Italian perspective scenery. A curtain midway to the rear and across the stage also enabled quick changes of place by dividing the stage in two, front and back. It allowed for the concealment behind it of the shifting of furniture and props to prepare for the next location. There's also a suggestion that a divided stage was used in the style of the medieval mansion, so that multiple locations could be seen at the same time for dramatic purposes or to ironically offset one scene against the other simultaneously. There was a large balcony over the stage, which provided extra space for the actors or an extra location. An inner stage, perhaps for an intimate space like a bedchamber, could be set between pillars in the middle of the back façade, replacing the more open painted backdrop. The stage itself was raised seven feet above the floor of the auditorium, which, uniquely, I think, was in an ovoid shape. The audience stood in the pit, which was 46 feet by 23 feet, and enclosed by two tiers of boxes, ten of them in all, reserved for the wealthy and the titled. Above them, there was the usual open gallery. The ceiling was vaulted and both stage and auditorium were gilded and ornate. The theatre was torn down in 1664 and replaced by a building that was much more in the Italian style. When we look at the Renaissance theatre of the Netherlands with some historical perspective, there's clearly a unique development, even from those close neighbours, the Germans. Farces were a popular favourite for the Dutch in the period, with plays on biblical subjects being more popular with the playwrights in the rhetorician circle than they seem to have been with the companies who performed the plays or indeed the audiences. But we shouldn't forget the morality play and particularly the embryo of every man, a play with a lasting legacy beyond much else that was produced by the Netherlands. However, We have to say that compared to the study of the theatre in other countries for the same period, there is a lack of good research for Dutch theatre, particularly in the more rural areas away from the cosmopolitan centres of Amsterdam, Bruges and Antwerp, which, we have to remember, was the largest port in Europe at the time. It's estimated that about 700 plays still exist from the period between 1400 and 1620, yet very few exist in accessible, scholarly and annotated editions. There's a lot of work out there for someone to do to improve our understanding of the Dutch Renaissance theatre. Next time, it's back to Italy one last time in the Renaissance to tie up a few loose ends. We'll be talking a bit more about architecture, some stage designers and an austere and hyper-religious architect who also turned his hand to playwriting. In the meantime, don't forget to join the Facebook page or group to keep us up to date with what's coming up next on the podcast. Also, there's additional information and blog posts on the website. That's all at www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com. If you'd like more audio content relating to the podcast and other things related to the history of theatre, please take a look at the offering on Patreon, where you can access all the content for a small monthly fee. I've put the links to the website, to Patreon and to ko for one-off donations in the show notes.
We are getting towards the end of the season on the Renaissance, so if you have any questions about the period that have been niggling away at you, please do send them over to me and I'll do my best to answer them in the concluding episode. Thanks again for listening and your support in whatever form. I look forward to your company next time, but if you do have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can always contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Thank you.